If you have your Bibles, I do invite you. We're going to be uh, turning to Luke chapter 2 as we continue to rehearse uh, the, the, the story of the coming of Christ into the world. Um, you know, the, the Sunday after Christmas is always an interesting Sunday in terms of who's going to show up and, and, and what kind of state of mind and being you're going to be in. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, someone was just telling me before the service that, um, you know, this seems, sometimes this can be a, a bit of a downer Sunday because it's after, you know, all the festivities and beyond that, we're just exhausted. <laughs> And I, I, that's probably true for some of you as well. And, and part of why we do gather is to be reminded of the hope that we have, of the promises uh, and, and uh, the meaning of the coming of Christ into this world. So it is important for us to, to continue to uh, reflect and to go over these ancient, the, the story of Christ coming into the world. Well, this passage before us this morning tells us uh, Uh, What happens to Jesus roughly 40 days after his birth? It's a story of God's promise being fulfilled and the testimony of two additional witnesses observing what God has done, testifying that Jesus is the long-awaited Redeemer. Uh, So it is a profound narrative, and I invite you to stand as I read from Luke chapter 2, 22 through 40, uh, verse 40. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what he said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned uh, into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
Would you pray with me? God, our Father, in the midst of our circumstances, may our minds be composed and our unquiet hearts at rest. By your Holy Spirit, teach us to be still, to know that you are God. Through our Savior Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Our text begins with Mary and Joseph. Um, They're going up to the temple in Jerusalem as required by the law of Moses. In order for sacrifices and a financial offering to be made, Uh, And furthermore, the text tells us that as part of the process, uh, Jesus is being presented. So uh, there's a a piece that he's being presented to the Lord. So um, the Jewish law required, uh, after a period of 40 days, um, uh, uh, that a sin offering and a burnt offering were to be offered for the purification of uh, the mom. And in addition, because with the firstborn son, a small fee would also be paid in order to symbolically redeem the firstborn son that God claimed as his own when the Israelites left Egypt. For the sacrifices, a lamb and either a turtle dove or a pigeon would ordinarily be offered. Or if the parents couldn't afford a lamb, it was acceptable to go with two pigeons, two turtle doves. And in fact, we're told that that's the option. Option B is what Mary and Joseph opted for, and, and, and probably showing, you know, the, these were not wealthy people. That doesn't necessarily mean they were poor, but it, it does mean that they couldn't afford the lamb. Luke is showing us that from the beginning, Joseph and Mary with Jesus, they're being very careful to fulfill all the stipulations of the law. Luke emphasizes this point as he, he repeats three times in this, this narrative, um, this emphasis on their obedience to the law. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, they offered sacrifices according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 39, uh, and this serves as kind of a, a little bookend to this uh, immediate section, that they had performed uh, everything according to the law of the Lord. In Joseph and Mary, we see this scrupulous desire to serve, to obey God in everything. And in the context of Luke, this sets a theme for Jesus himself. He too will scrupulously be one who is obedient to the will of his Father, who will be obedient um, to the law of the Lord. And this is, you know, we're ending one year, we're, we're beginning anew. This is A good reminder for us, this is what God wants us to be. We can start to kind of begin to persuade and convince ourselves that God really doesn't care so much, you know, if if we get a little lax in our scruples, if we we get lax in, in our morality. And it's a reminder, no, God wants his people to be fully obedient uh, to his will. And let me just mention, um, hopefully I won't dwell on this too long, um, Part of what's going on in this passage is, you know, if you watch like a, a, a recently saw a Marvel movie where there were a lot of callbacks to earlier movies, and, and everyone, every time there's a callback, you know, people have seen those earlier movies, they're like cheering, like, yeah, that's, you know, did you see that? Did you get what he just did there? 
Well, there are lots of callbacks um, in the Gospels as we um, are introduced to the coming of Jesus. Um, one of those callbacks we'll see later is just a callback to the prophecies and the promises of Isaiah. Um, and we'll see this in the words of Simeon. But another callback that's going on here, uh, and it's subtle, and, and, and at the end is where I think Luke makes it clear what he's doing here. And he's already done a little of this. But the callback is to the prophet Samuel, okay? The prophet Samuel. Um, and this, if you've read your Old Testament, this is where it pays off to have attended Sunday school. You know that, that Samuel is this, this great man of God in the Old Testament, this prophet of the Lord. And you know his story, and already Luke has made this kind of connection in the prayer of thanksgiving that Mary offers to the Lord in response to the, to the angel's announcement of the birth of Christ. And in her prayer of thanksgiving, she is calling back to the, the, the prayer of thanksgiving offered by Samuel's mother, Hannah. Um, and, and there are these themes of reversal, how God, you know, he, he takes, he sees the ordinary people. He raises the exalted. He tears down the proud. And this is, these are themes that are right out of the prayer of thanksgiving offered by Hannah. So we've already seen this callback, but now Jesus is being presented to the Lord. Do you remember what Hannah's promise was when she was praying to the Lord for a son because Hannah was barren? Well, Hannah says, Lord, if you grant me the son, I will give him to you. He will serve you forever. And so the way this is written in the beginning of Luke 2 is this idea that um, it's not just that, that Mary and Joseph are fulfilling their obligations, but this is a way of presenting Jesus to the Lord. That's the language Luke uses here. And then in recalling the law, Luke emphasizes that Jesus is being presented because he is the firstborn, is most holy to the Lord. Again, this is a call back to Samuel, who as a Nazarite, um, Samuel was one of those Nazarites who would never cut his hair, would never drink alcohol, had to stay away from anything unclean. He was holy to the Lord. And even the sacrifice of the two turtle doves that Luke highlights here, usually we think of him highlighting this to show us that, you know, Mary and Joseph, they didn't have a lot of money. That's why they offered these sacrifices. But it's also the case that the two turtle dove offering was the offering of the Nazarite if, in fact, they came into contact with a dead person and were made unclean. That was the sacrifice of the Nazarite that Samuel would have offered In the passage immediately following this one, we have that story of Jesus at 12 years old. He he stays behind. Um, You remember his parents come to Jerusalem um, for the feast, and and they leave, and and they play what we in our family call Jesus at the temple. That's when we leave one of our kids at church. And and, um, so you think I'm joking. But anyway, um, so in any case... That scene, you know, why does Luke include that whole scene of Jesus at the temple? One, in another sense, this is a subtle callback to Samuel, who himself was raised in the temple uh, or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. He served with the high priest. He served uh, with the, the Ark of the, uh, in the place where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. 
And, and, and so Luke makes this clear, I think he makes this explicit when he concludes uh, this whole section on what's all part of this birth narrative, where he says in Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is like, you know, again, in, in a movie where they, they say, oh, uh, you know, this phrase that has this callback to these previous movies. Well, if you turn back to 1 Samuel, um, chapter 2, verse 26, the writer of 1 Samuel is concluding the section about the child Samuel with these words. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So if you're paying attention closely, you see what Luke is doing. And what Luke is saying here in this callback is he's saying that Jesus himself will be like Samuel. That, G- that Samuel of the Old Testament was a picture, this kind of, that's a, a faint picture. I mean, Samuel's just a, a, a man, but he's a picture of the holy, the commitment to holiness. He's a picture of a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a picture of one whom, through whom the Lord speaks. And what was known about Samuel is not a word of his, it says, fell to the ground. And that's what Luke is saying. This is the one who's rising up like Samuel. His words will n- not go unfulfilled. Everything that Jesus speaks is from the Father, is from God, and it is trustworthy. And it's just this little subtle callback um, that Luke is, is bringing to our attention. Well, beyond uh, this particular callback to Samuel, Luke introduces us to two just paragons of faith, and they serve as witnesses to the messianic identity of Jesus, and that being Simeon and Anna. Part of what I think is also going on here is, is the Old Testament always would say, you know, a matter is settled on the basis of the, the evidence or, or testimony of two or three witnesses. And so here's Luke right away, you know, soon after the birth. And we've already had many witnesses from, you know, the shepherds and the angels and the wise men coming. Um, but now um, you have this, this event, Jesus being presented at the temple, and these two godly, godly, righteous individuals who recognize the genuine identity of Jesus, and that being Simeon and Anna. So we begin with Simeon, verse 25. And now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He's described as being righteous and devout. Uh, Together, these words describe a man who feared God, who walked carefully, who walked circumspectly with God. Uh, This is the same word that's used to describe the character of um, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, and later Joseph of Arimathea. Simeon is specifically waiting for the consolation of Israel. And this is rooted in the great promises of God to restore his people. Um, 
And, and this itself, this, this reference to the consolation of Israel, is rooted in a theme that comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And this is a passage that is often read around Christmas, um, and it should be familiar to you. Isaiah, just, uh, just a couple of verses. Comfort, comfort. That's where this, this, this idea of consolation comes from. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And then part of the, the, the consolation, um, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, shall see it together. Now, part of these promises were fulfilled when, when the Lord brought the, the exiles, the Israelites in Babylonian exile, when he brings them back to their land. But there was always a sense that the, the, the degree of the promises had not been quite fulfilled. And so the Israelites understood that ultimately the fullness of these promises would come in the person of the Messiah. And so when, when Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's, this is a messianic expectation that the Lord is going to bring the one, <laughs> the chosen one, who literally will begin to reverse all the problems, all the curses, all the pain and disappointments that we experience in this fallen and weary world. And this was their comfort. This was the consolation, the promise um, that, that gave them strength. And then we come to Anna. Anna, likewise, is a great woman of God. She's described in verse 36. She's described there as a prophetess um, from the tribe of Asher. She is, um, and as a prophetess, she would have had special sensitivity, a divine insight into the spiritual truths that might ordinarily be hidden from others. And, And so part of what Luke is doing here is he's highlighting their kind of credentials, This is why you can trust these two individuals for Simeon, righteous, devout, filled with the Spirit, given this promise that he would see the Christ. And then Anna. And we're told that, you know, her story, when we read it, I think we see it as kind of tragic. Um, But I'm not sure that's the way Luke wants us to see it. Her story is that from the time she got married, and think in those days, you know, it could have been 14, 15, something like that. She was married for seven years. So that means she's a widow at age, you know, 21, 22, uh, something like that. And then from that period on, and so our, there's a little bit of an ambiguity here in the Greek text. Our translation in English says she was 84 when this event takes place. But the ambiguity is that it appears to actually say that she was... Um, uh, she served in the temple for 84 years. That would mean she's over 100, <laughs> if that, if that um, translation is actually the correct uh, interpretation. But all that to say, whether it's 60 or 80 years, she's been a widow. And she, in her widowhood, has served at the temple. It's, um, probably she didn't live there, but, but she served there, you know, like it, just to emphasize, day and night. And she's there in worship. She's there in prayer. She's there um, fasting on a regular basis. So often fasting and prayer go hand in hand. 
And so she is being presented to us as a highly trustworthy witness. If you knew these two individuals, you would say, yes, they are speaking reliably in a trustworthy way for the Lord. And both of them declare when they see the baby, when they see the infant, that this is the one. This is this, the, mess, the Messiah that has come um, for her, uh, the, the, the redemption um, that has long ago been promised. And again, just as an aside, we brush over this quickly in our modern day. But Luke doesn't hesitate to use a woman as, you know, one of the two witnesses here. I just want you to see this, that Christianity has always viewed men and women equal in the sight of the Lord, even in a, a, a very patriarchal society uh, where the uh, testimony of witnesses was not always viewed as being trustworthy, but not so within the pages of Scripture or the New Testament. And so as we come... Um, we learn from both Simeon and Anna um, what it means to wait. They have been waiting for years. We're not told how old Simeon is. We're just told that when he sees um, the Christ, he says, now I can die. <laughs> That's what he, Now I can depart. Well, he's saying, now I can you know, leave this planet. I can go to be with the Lord, which indicates he's probably closer to the end of his life. So we're probably dealing with two older uh, well-respected individuals who have been waiting all their lives for this event. And Simeon, on the basis of a, a promise that was personally given to him by the Spirit. When we think about waiting, so waiting in the Bible is a, a, a virtue. And we need to understand that waiting, you know, we think of when we're waiting, you know, for the doctor to see us. We're in the lobby. We're, you know, just trying to make the time pass as well as we can, you know, and, and, and that's what we think of as waiting, this kind of passive experience. But when the Bible talks about waiting, it's not passive. It is an active, um, uh, it is the act of believing. It is the act of trusting in God to do what he has promised and to allow that faith that God will fulfill the promise to have this ripple effect uh, in your life. So that in one sense, to wait upon the Lord is in fact to live as if in some sense that promise has been fulfilled. It is to allow the benefits because the promise is going to happen to affect you now. And so you, it's, it's a very active spiritual um, uh, discipline. They model this kind of faith, that they believe, they expect God to come through, to fulfill his promises, to bring the kingdom of God ultimately in its fullness. And they do this in spite of all the circumstances around them. I mean, think of Israel. They're, they've, for centuries, they've been in exile. Even in return, they're under the thumb of the mighty empires of the Persians and the Medes and then the Greeks, and now they're under the thumb of the Romans. They're, they're just this kind of insignificant backwater people. And, and they're living in the promise that God will raise up a Messiah through them, that he will begin to establish his kingdom, and that this kingdom will not end at the borders of Israel, but will spread throughout the entire earth. They're living in the glory of these promises. 
the practice of waiting is a lost art. And we can only marvel at these individuals who model so well the act of spiritual patience, this trust in the Lord to come through, to fulfill his promises. Returning just briefly back to um, Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, this idea of waiting is an important theme. And it's important to see how Isaiah 40 concludes. He says there's actually a blessing to waiting. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 29. The people in exile knew what it meant to be disappointed. They knew what it meant to have their hopes and dreams dashed. They knew that the dreams they had as little children often were not going to be fulfilled as adults. They understood um, pain and disappointment. And it's in this context that Isaiah writes this, He, the Lord, gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And then what's the key to their spiritual renewal? What's the key to strength? Well, he tells us. But they who wait upon the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We can learn from Simeon and Anna. We can learn this discipline of living in the promises by faith that God will not let one word of his fall to the ground. Now, going back and revisiting the words that Simeon pronounces over Jesus, they begin as a song of praise. In verse 28, we read that Simeon took him, that is the infant Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God. We can only imagine what that moment would have been. You know, who knows how many years Simeon has been waiting for this promise that he's going to see the the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of of the serpent. He's going to see that future royal son of David who will take and ascend to the throne of, of King David. How many years did he wait? How much, how many, you know, what travailed, what, what, passed in his life between the promise and the fulfillment of seeing this child uh, born and taking the child up into his arms. We don't know, but we can only imagine how many doubts, like, did I hear the promise right? (laughs) Is it true? Is there really even God? Am I, is this just like make-believe? Am I hearing things? That's what the circumstances of the world do to us. That's what Satan does to us. And then that day comes, and he sees, you know, Mother Mary carrying in the child, probably wrapped up, and and he's able, you know, he goes to Mary, may I? (laughs) And he takes him into his arms and looks into his eyes, and then he pronounces his blessing. For my eyes, he says in verse 30, have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And now he's quoting, he's he's showing his familiarity with the Old Testament, especially Isaiah. 
He will, uh, you've prepared him in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Salvation is bound up in the child. He is a light. And what's interesting about these words from Simeon is he knows his Old Testament. He knows that the child is, it's not just about Israel. I mean, this is really amazing that Simeon at the start sees that this is going to be, mean a worldwide kingdom, that this will include not just the Jewish people, but will incorporate the Gentiles as well. He's maybe hearkening back to Isaiah 60. And the nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Or Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This becomes a basis for evangelistic outreach around the world. His prophecy is already about global evangelism, that Jesus is God's light to the nations. Though the whole world be in darkness because of sin, somehow this child, the, the, the solution to mankind's problems is not a program, it's not a government, it's not an education, it's a person, it's a deliverer, it's a Messiah, and that's the, who we proclaim to the world. And then following the song of praise, Simeon follows it with this little somber note Christmas comes with an edge. This is verse 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. For the first time... See, all the announcements prior to this have just been unalloyed joy. It's just been about the positive elements of the coming of the Christ. But in Simeon, we see this hint of opposition, rejection, suffering that the Messiah will endure. And this opposition, we're also told, will affect his mother. And we're given just this little bit of this foreshadowing of the pain of the experience that Mother Mary will experience when Jesus is, in fact, crucified. That for her, it will be like a sword cutting through her heart. And maybe this prophecy would have been remembered by Mary at that point, and and perhaps a comfort, at least underneath showing her that somehow, even if she didn't understand, God was, in fact, sovereign, that he was working out his, uh, his plans, uh, his will for the world through Christ and through his death. This is the point. He says, this, will be, uh, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The fall and rising One commentator, William Hendrickson, writes that Jesus is history's watershed, okay? So a watershed is this event that, depending on your position, will send you in two entirely opposite directions. And and the, the word picture is water hitting the peak of a roof. 
if that drop of rain hits just an inch one side or the other, it will end up going in totally opposite directions. And the point that the commentator is making is that Jesus is the greatest watershed moment in the history of the planet. That depending on our attitude, our stance, our faith, or rejection of this Messiah, depending on whether we accept the witness of Simeon and Anna or we reject it, it leads us in two entirely different directions. It leads to two different destinies. This child is for the the rising and the fall of many. Our stance towards Jesus is the chief issue of life. A person falls when due to their pride, they think they aren't so bad. They don't need a Messiah. Or they conclude uh, that the testimony of Simeon and Anna is false. And so they reject the idea that Jesus is the redemption for all who believe. But to rise is to believe the message of Simeon and Anna that the child is the long-awaited Messiah, and to place our hope, our trust in him as our consolation. To believe the message is to rise, and it is to be accepted into the kingdom of God, to be reconciled and to be at peace with the Lord. Simeon's words are telling us that our attitude or stance towards Jesus reveals the spiritual condition of our hearts. To reject Christ is to reject God's solution for the problem of our sin and guilt. To believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah is to find life. It's to recognize that he was, in fact, God's solution through his death vindicated by God in his resurrection on the third day. And so I'll just conclude this way, that he is the light of the world. He is the glory of his people. He is the central question, the singular issue, which determines a person's rising or falling. So as we conclude this year, (laughs) the declaration is, turn your eyes towards Jesus. Believe the promise. Believe the declaration that he is our consolation, that he is the redemption of all God's people. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is by your grace alone that we are able to endure the temptations and the trials that come our way, not being moved off of the hope of the gospel. Lord, continue to show your steadfast love to us, so that in all the adversity we encounter, we will not waver or lose our confidence in Jesus and his promises. In our weaknesses, may you be made strong, and may we continue to persevere to the end in the confession of your great name through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Lord. Amen.